0: I'm Mike Kimbrough. I'm one of the elders here at Alliance, and I'm here uh, for the last several weeks. You've been watching a few little videos of families that have been in the adoption, that have adopted, and what it's meant to them. It's been kind of a lead-in to a ministry that we're going to help facilitate. Now, we're not really starting this in in the sense that people have been adopting in this church for a long time and fostering, but we want to make it a little more formal in that we were going to help facilitate and resource them in whatever way we can. Before I go any further, though, I want to ask those that have been been involved with adoption or foster care in some way to stand up right now for me. If you've been involved in adoption or foster care, stand up. Well, I don't know if the rest of you are just too humble or you don't know the scriptures very well. But I'm going to... uh, Scott's going to talk about reading your Bible today. I'm going to read some verses here. Then I want you to... We'll start at Galatians. If you'll read along with me. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave... But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 1:5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Romans eight fifteen, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now I want to ask the question again: Who in here has been involved with adoption? or foster care in their life in some way. Stand up if you have. Okay, I just want you to understand, every one of you that has accepted Christ as his Savior is adopted. Okay, so you've all been involved in that. It's with this in mind that we know the heart of Christ is for for adoption, is for children in need, people in need, that we as a church are going to start, start this adoption ministry, foster ministry, help to needy children ministry, whatever, we haven't got a name yet. But with the first thing, part of that is, uh, and there's going to be many parts of that, but the first part is to help financially. I hear this a lot. I've been through two adoptions myself. I know it costs a lot of money. And so what we want to do is to help out as a church. Some of us in here aren't going to adopt any more children. Some of us in here Uh, don't have the wherewithal to actually be that person, but we all have the the ability to help financially. So the plan is, and this is what this process is going to look like initially, someone will come to us as elders, the church body, uh, and let us know that they're in the adoption process. When they do, we will kind of check out, make sure, see where they are, and when the bills start coming, then we will uh, advertise, announce them uh, in front of the church, and give people an opportunity to donate toward their adoption with the idea that that will help them out greatly. We also will be uh, praying for them during this time as well as a church body. With that in mind, we have a family right now that I want to introduce. If you don't know Eric and Cassie Job, they are in the adoption process. Uh, the bills are starting to come due. They're, uh, it's time for us to start helping. They're gonna be our first family. And so the way you do that is in the offering, online, designate, you designate to adoption, Job family, you make that clear on your uh, offering, and that money will go to help offset some of the expenses they're having. So as a church body, I want to encourage us to be uh, generous and uh, to help them out. If you are interested in uh, uh, being part of this uh, committee uh, that, uh, with the adoption, we're going to meet today. We start at 5 o'clock in room 25 upstairs and we would love to have anybody, if you have the heart for it, we are just now starting. This is the very first thing, this part of it, but there have lots of other ideas, Uh, but if you want to meet or if you put on the connection card that you're interested in, we'll get in touch with you. And I'm going to try and get through this one last time. I've tried this several times, but um, there there was a quote. I was helping a little ministry the other day and they had a quote from Mother Teresa and fortunately she was quoting the Bible and if I choke up, Don't worry about it. But she said, "At the end of life, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We will be judged by quote I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was naked and you clothed me, and I was homeless and you took me in. That's how we'll be judged. I want to pray for the Job family right now, Father." I lift up the jobs in this decision that you have laid on their heart, that you will uh, bless them mightily through the resources of our body, the church here, and that you will meet their needs. I praise you that you see us as your hands and your heart and your feet, Lord, that you have given us that privilege of being that, and that you will put on our hearts uh, the desires that you have for adoption, for taking care of needy uh, children, and that you will just open our eyes to that need as a church body now. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Amen.
1: Thank you. Mike, I am uh, personally um, very excited about formalizing. Uh, th- this ministry has already been happening uh, in our church, and I'm excited about seeing it become po- more a part of who we are. Um, I can't imagine uh, not... I'm just going to leave that alone. So let's go to the sermon, shall we? As long as we are talking in this sermon series about the deep end, um, we might as well talk about swimming. And as we talk about swimming, we have to talk about Michael Phelps. The accomplishments of this 28-year-old swimmer are staggering. During his Olympic career, he won more medals than any athlete in history, with a total of 22 Olympic medals. He won more gold medals than anyone, 18, which is twice as many as the second person on the list. He won the most medals in three uh, successive Olympics, 04, 08, and 2012. In fact, in 08, he Um, set the record for most gold medals in a single Olympics with eight. If you throw in all of the international medals he's won, like uh, in the world championships or the Pan Am uh, games, he has won 71 medals, 57 of them gold. During his career, he set a record, 39 world records. He was the World Swimmer of the Year seven times, the American Swimmer of the Year nine times. He was Sports Illustrated uh, magazine's Sportsman of the Year in 2008. does make me wonder how he only made it one year. It's all a bit overwhelming. Here's a question for you to ponder. Do you suppose for a moment that Phelps became the swimmer he was without training? (laughs) Of course not. I mean, during his peak training for um, international competitions, uh, Phelps exercised twice a day, five to six hours a day, six days a week. On average, he swam 80, thousand meters, that's 50 miles a week. That's more than most of us have swam in a lifetime. He did not win all of those medals. He did not become the elite swimmer that he was without training. Oh, and by the way, during his training, his diet was enormous. The average U.S. male consumes about 3,000 calories a day. I think I do a little better than that, but 3,000 calories a day. During training, Phelps consumed 12,000 calories a day. Now, that's a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around, so let me share with you his typical daily, daily diet for breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches with... Everything listed there. One five-egg omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast. Don't forget the powdered sugar. Three chocolate chip pancakes and two cups of coffee. That was one meal, one day. For lunch, 1,000 calories of energy drinks, often consumed in milkshakes. One pound of pasta with tomato sauce. Gentlemen, I know you don't know what one pound is. That's how much your wife makes for the, a family of four. And two large, and I do mean large, I saw a picture of them, ham and cheese sandwiches with mayo and white bread. For for dinner, one entire pizza, 1,000 calories of energy drinks again, and another pound of pasta with tomato sauce. Here's my point. It took tons of fuel, food, in training to become the swimmer. That he was. Last week, we launched into a study of the spiritual disciplines, those practices, those training exercises by which we become who we are supposed to be. And the goal of the Christian life is not some perishable. Wreath or even a gold medal, the goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus, to be transformed into his image and thereby bring him glory. And I am convinced that that pursuit will bring you greatest joy. In fact, Peter calls it inexpressible joy." It is that for which you were created. And it is my premise that this goal of being like Jesus takes training. It takes hard work. You're not going to jump into the deep end of the spiritual pool and suddenly, presto chango, be able to swim like Jesus. There is a training regimen, some diligent work on our part to be followed. Y- yes. Of course, that training and transformation is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tried to make that very clear last week. I will continue to do so. All of this is his work in us. I also suggested that you do not become like Jesus by trying harder. I didn't want anybody to leave here last Sunday and say, all right, on Monday, I'm going to be like Jesus. No, my goal is to help you to train better. And even that training is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I also want you to remember that the training is the means to an end. It is not the end itself. In other words, you don't swim 80,000 meters a week to swim 80,000 meters a week, you know, unless you're just crazy. You do it for the gold. You don't observe the spiritual disciplines to observe the spiritual disciplines, all right? The, The disciplines are not some legalistic measure of boxes to be checked, all right? Read my Bible today, check Prayed through my list today, check. I even skipped breakfast today, check, which means I'll eat twice as much at lunch. No, they are simply tools, means by which we pursue greatest joy of the glory of being like Jesus. So let me be clear. I want, I want fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ to be normal at Alliance, not abnormal. I want fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ to be our community expectation. I don't want us to be surprised to see someone sold out to Christ. I want rather for us to be surprised if there is a professing believer among us who is not sold out. Because that, I believe, is what the Scripture teaches. Not, not that we will be perfect, but that by God's grace, we will pur- pursue Christ with everything that we have. And with all that in mind, um, le- last week we found that the spiritual disciplines are not the following three things. And I want to remind you of, of this as well. First, the disciplines are not a barometer of spirituality. Observe these disciplines five or six hours a day and you will be really, really spiritual. Not necessarily. Secondly, they are not um, uh, necessarily unpleasant. We hear that word discipline and we think Drudgery. But we remember it's actually discipline without direction that is drudgery. We've got a direction. We have a goal. Our goal, uh, we run this race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why we run. Third, the disciplines are not a way to earn favor with God. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. You already have all of the favor or grace of God that you will ever get because it comes from an infinite source through an inexhaustible work, the work of Christ on his cross. Hear me this morning, God loves you and you're not going to get him to love you any more or any less. He loves you. His love for you is not based on your performance. It's not based on these disciplines. It is because of his son. These disciplines are are simply a means, I believe, an important, perhaps even indispensable means in our pursuit of sanctification. Sanctification, this being transformed into the image of Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit by which we become more joyfully holy. And and it's a a process with which we cooperate. That means we practice. We train. It means we work. The, the, The definition of the disciplines that I gave you last week went like this. It is any activity that can help gain power to live the life as Jesus both taught and modeled it. And so, as Michael Phelps trained to win gold medals, we train, as Paul told Timothy, for the purpose of godliness because Paul told us that while physical exercise, whatever yours is, Physical exercise, training or swimming or basketball or running or hiking or aerobics or spin class or cycling or or lifting weights, fill in your blank. That is of some value, you know, winning gold medals and the like. But godliness is profitable not only in this life right now, but also in the life to come. So this morning... I'm going to suggest that these various spiritual practices, these disciplines, all require fuel. They all require spiritual food. Much like Phelps had to uh, consume massive quantities of food, so also we must consume spiritual food for our spiritual lives. Are you with me? So here we go. Everything I've said up to this point is to make this statement. That food is found primarily in the Word of God, the Bible. To quote Pastor Ordberg again, I have never known someone leading a spiritually transformed life who had not been deeply... Deeply, deeply saturated in the scripture. Neither have I. Just as it would be impossible for Phelps to train without food, so also, listen to me, you cannot grow in Christ without the food of God's word. Without the word, you will become weak and anemic. But you know that already, don't you? Ask yourself right now, how is my spiritual life? It is directly proportional to your time in the Word. So the very first spiritual discipline is a regular, intentional diet of the Word of God. Consider the following Verses which tell us everything that God's word does for us. I began looking this up. I began talking. Before you knew it, I had three pages. I had to, like, delete two of them. Not kidding. Just a sampling. Jesus, while resisting the devil's temptations, quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is written... Men shall not live on bread alone. I don't care if it is 12,000 calories, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your spiritual food is to be found on every word of God. Later, in fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to his Father. He's, he's, he's praying for you, and this is what he says sanctify them in truth. Your word, Father, is truth. Jesus prayed for us that we would be sanctified and then said that truth is found in God's word. So you want to grow in sanctification, that is, you want to grow to be like Jesus in joyful holiness, it's going to take the Bible. Paul goes further. Uh, I mean, uh, spiritual life actually begins with the word of God. Peter said it this way. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The very fact that you know Christ, the very fact that you have been saved and born again is through the agency and work of the word of God. Then Paul goes further, uh, It's uh, talking to the elders in Ephesus. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. The scripture is the, is the word of God that redeems us. The scripture is the word of God that builds us up. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking, he, it's very interesting, he's actually talking about husbands loving their wives. And he he can't help but talk about the Bible. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he, now we're gonna talk about Jesus in a minute, might sanctify her, that he might sanctify his bride, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. Please again notice the word of God is that which sanctifies and cleanses the bride of Christ and makes us holy and blameless. Struggling with your life? How much are you spending time in the word of God? Directly proportional, folks. Ephesians chapter 6, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. It's a weapon the spirit uses in spiritual warfare. I'll come back to that. Philippians 2, word of life. Colossians 3, the, the, the word of Christ which brings wisdom. Titus 1, it contains sound doctrine, has the ability then to refute false teaching. Hebrews 4, it's living and active. Like a sword, it can divide the thoughts and intents of our hearts. James, it's the word of truth which saves our souls. First Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us to desire the pure milk of the word because it's by the word that we grow. And then in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, don't miss this. You know this verse. All scripture, every word of it is inspired by God and is profitable. It's good. And it's good for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So that the man or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That, that passage tells us that every word of Scripture has been inspired by God and is therefore without error since God is without error. Every single word of it is trustworthy since God is trustworthy. And he tells us the Bible is profitable. It is profitable for teaching us and telling us for the way that we should live, for reproving us when we get off, correcting us and getting us back on the right uh, path, and then training us in righteousness. If you want to be a man or woman of God, folks, that comes through the word of God, then you will be equipped for every good work. Once in a while, people will say something like this. I think well-intentioned. They'll say, I don't want to just know the Bible. I want to do the Bible. I get that. I get that. But you got to know the Bible before you can do the Bible. So with all that in mind, everything everything that I've said up to this point, how then do we intentionally and regularly make the Bible ours? How do we take it in, consume it as food for our souls? I'm going to suggest the following five ways. For our spiritual discipline... I am suggesting that some or all of these, you should take some notes, some or all of these should be part of your regular training discipline. You will not grow without a regular intake of God's word. You will never become the person you want to become without the Bible. So five intentional ways to consume the Bible. They are very simply, uh, they are read, study, hear, memorize, and meditate. We're going to go through those very quickly. First, you must regularly read the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You'll go, that's, a, that's, pretty, that's brilliant, Scott. How long did it take you to come up with that? I know it's basic. I want you to think back to the times that you enjoyed a very close walk with Christ. No doubt that included spending sweet time in the Bible. You see, by reading, we gain an overall picture of God's work throughout time from beginning to end. It reminds us of God's purposes for humanity, how that he created us, and despite our rebellion, he loves us anyway, and he has worked and is working throughout time to call a people to himself. Reading the Bible reminds us that God is sovereignly bringing about his gracious and glorious purposes It reminds us who God is and who we are. It gives us hope and and direction. It gives us purpose and joy. Read the Bible. In order to read it, you must have a plan. You've you got to have an intentional plan. You, gotta, you can start at the beginning and read three chapters a day, and before you know it, you'll read through the whole Bible. Or you can start at the beginning and read a chapter a day, and it'll take you three years. There are tons of Bible reading plans. You can go to YouVersion, Y-O-U, YouVersion.com, and they've got lots of Bible reading plans. If you want to go through it in 90 days, they've got a plan for you. I don't care how much you read. My encouragement to you is to read. And read all of it. All scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. It's for you. Second way to make the Bible ours or to consume it is to study it. Now this takes a little more effort than just reading. I'm not not saying that you have to do this every day. But you should build it in as a regular part of your training regimen. Now, to study, listen to me very carefully, to study takes time and a pen, all right? Or, or a laptop. You have to slow down. You have to underline. You have to take notes. Remember how to do that? You have to learn. So let me, let me give you a simple three-step process to study a passage of Scripture, all right? It's called the inductive Bible study method, right? Simple three-step process. First, the first step is observation. You simply observe the text by asking those journalistic questions of who, what, when, where, why, and how. You just go to the text and start asking questions. You have to notice who's speaking, To whom are they speaking? What are the circumstances around the text? Who's the author? To whom was he writing? You would be amazed if you would just observe the text instead of just making it say what you want it to say, ignoring all of those questions. You'd be amazed at how much heresy you'd eliminate. Observe the text, by the way, in its context. I'll come back to that. The second step after you've observed the text, which you must do that first step. Don't skip it. The second step is interpretation. Now, got a little bit to say about this. Interpretation is determining what the author meant when he wrote. Determining what the author meant when he wrote. Let me be clear. There can only be one correct interpretation of a passage of Scripture. Only one. In fact, every once in a while, you will hear uh, of a group of people kind of sitting in a circle, right? Everybody's got an open Bible and presumably the leader will ask the question, so what does this verse mean to you? Stupid question. It does not matter what it means to you. What matters is what it means. You see, if If you think a verse says one thing, and I say it means something else, either you're wrong, I'm wrong, or we're both wrong, we both can't be right. There is only one true interpretation of a text. And if we would seek as followers of Christ to ascertain that meaning, there would not be the heresies, there would not be the divisions that exist in the Christian church today. Hey, let me share some other thoughts about this. I'm just kind of rapid fire. Here we go. First, first, if it, if it was not in the mind of the author when he wrote it, you're probably wrong. Second, if you come up with someone, something that no one else ever has, you're probably wrong. In fact, you've heard me say this before. We call that Star Trek theology to boldly go where no man has gone before. And if you come up with something that contradicts another portion of scripture, you are likely wrong. You see, as you study the scripture, there are a couple of uh, along with interpretation, there are a couple of of things to keep in mind as you study. First, I've made reference to this term already, is context. What is the context of the verse or verses? What comes before it? What comes after it? What What does the chapter say before? What does the chapter say after it? What is the overall intent of the book? If you just, and this is very popular today, if you just rip a verse out of its context, just lift it right out, you will likely miss its meaning. Let me give you a couple of examples. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't care how many times you say that verse before you take a biology test for which you have not studied, you're going to fail has nothing to do with that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Talk speaks of the power and the ability we have to face persecution. <laughs> Another example. Since I was a kid in church, I, I, I've heard people pray something like this. Lord, you said where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And, and, and I believe that's true. In fact, we often do that. We'll say something, quote a verse, right truth, wrong address you with me and and so we hear people pray that prayer but the context of that verse is in Matthew chapter 18 is church discipline And so if you are in the process of disciplining someone for sin, either you're going to them, you're taking two or three witnesses with you to go to them, or you're taking them before the entire church. And the purpose of that, by the way, is restoration. Jesus says, if you are doing that in a united way to confront sin, uh, there two or three of you gather in my name. There I am with my power and my authority in the midst of them, in the midst of you. And so I know I'm a little bit ornery, but every time... Every time I hear someone pray their prayer, you know, Lord, you said we're two or three together. I wouldn't want to pop up and say, oh, somebody's in trouble. That's the context. Another thing to keep in mind, in addition to context, is this idea of cross-reference. So what I meant a moment ago when I said you have to compare Scripture with Scripture, if two passages seemingly contradict each other, your interpretation or one, of one or both of those passages is likely wrong. You understand that the Bible ultimately has one author. That's God, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, if you want to look that up. And God <laughs> did not get confused when he inspired his word. There's no contradictions. I don't care what you've heard about, no contradictions. And so the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Now, having said that word commentaries, let me also address that. Very often you will hear again, well-intentioned people say, you don't need books about the Bible. You don't need commentaries. You just need the Bible. And I kind of get that, but I believe that that is incredibly naive at best and perhaps arrogant. You see, we have 2,000 years of church history behind us. Shoulders of godly people upon which we can stand. Lots of godly people through the centuries to our present day. And so as you are studying a book, you decide, I'm going to study through the book of Philippians. Then go buy a book or two, commentary or two on the book of Philippians. People that you can trust so that you can compare your interpretations with those of trusted, researched, godly people commentators. It'll keep you out of the weeds. So observation, interpretation, and third is application. I want to remind you, it is, that is the end of all Bible study. You don't just study the Bible to get smarter. You study the Bible so that you can apply it to become more like Jesus. Jesus. In fact, think of it this way. Think of these three steps this way. Observation answers the question, what does it say? Interpretation answers the question, what does it mean? And application answers that question we often skip. Well, what in the world am I going to do about it? To become more like Jesus. That, after all, is our goal. And while there may be, while there is only one uh, interpretation there may be many applications to a text okay so very quickly I've got two down three to go we're going to move really really fast a third way to consume the Bible is simply to hear it to hear it taught maybe even hear it read that comes in a variety of ways today we are an incredibly blessed people I mean, certainly you can hear it taught here at Alliance on Sunday mornings and in life groups and youth groups and Sunday schools and men's and women's Bible studies. We provide a number of opportunities for you to hear the Bible taught. And I want to encourage you to avail yourself to those opportunities. In fact, if this half hour, 45 minutes, is all that you hear each week, probably not enough. You want proof? I don't know. Do you think you can eat one meal a week? incredibly blessed people. You can turn on the TV. You can turn on the radio. You can plug in your iPod. The challenge there, though, is you've got to make sure that the person that you are listening to is orthodox, meaning that they are teaching and interpreting rightly. Don't know if you know this or not, but there are a lot of spiritual flakes out there. And just because they read, uh, excuse me, just because they hold a Bible or occasionally read a verse doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. In fact, I am convinced, that I'll, I start to say most, but I'll say a lot. The people on the TV, while they hold the Bible, I'm not convinced they've ever read it. The truth is, there is more opportunity for wolves and heresies to infiltrate the church than ever before. So be careful who you listen to. If you have a question, just ask. Now, that does not mean Please hear me. I'm not infallible. I've said stupid things. I've made mistakes. I've even interpreted incorrectly before. But 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 just ask, and together we'll explore to ascertain their biblical readiness. A fourth way to consume the Bible. Fourth way to consume it is to memorize it immediately. someone say, "Are you out of your mind?" I stopped doing that in wanna. You kidding me? I'm old. I have a terrible memory. I can't memorize like anything. Well, actually, you can. Most of you, you see, memorize things that are important to you, like your your address or your phone number or your date of birth or your Social Security number. Most of you will remember how to get home today. Most of you, on most occasion, remember the names of your children and grandchildren Many of you know the words to lots of your very favorite songs, some that you wouldn't sing here. You see, you memorize what is important, and I am suggesting that the Word of God is important. You should commit it to memory. Again, you need a plan, because if you don't have a plan, you won't memorize anything. Remember earlier, I said that the word of God is the sword of the spirit by which he does spiritual warfare, either with you or for you. So you memorize God's word so that as you are facing a particularly challenging time, the spirit can use it in your life. Yes, it's true. Yeah. The spirit could zap you as you're walking down the street give you all of the Scripture that you need without any prior work on your part. You could try putting the Bible underneath your pillow as you sleep each night, but generally, he chooses not to work in a vacuum. He chooses to use what you've stored away. So memorize. You say, well, what what verses do I memorize? I have... A few ideas about that. First of all, there are lots of memory programs available. Go on the Internet. Find a topical memory program that that, that talk about verses that talk about salvation or assurance or obedience or whatever. Memorize those verses. Take them a section at a time. Second, start memorizing your favorite verses or passages just like you memorize your favorite songs. For me, that would be like John 1, 1 to 18. Romans 3, 21 to 26, which I and D.A. Carson believes, have, happen to believe is the most important text in the Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Some of you could even memorize Philemon, verse 16. Some of you could even memorize all of Philemon. Third, you could memorize the promises of God, which are there to encourage you. Fourth, you could memorize verses contain, containing commands in areas in which you are struggling. Hmm. Psalm 119, a psalmist says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does that work? Because when you have God's word in here, when you are tempted, the, sword of the, the spirit can use the sword of the spirit to cut it out of your life. So. What are you struggling with? Let me talk to the men right quick, all right? Let me talk to the men right quick because I know you're a man. You struggle with uh, pride, anger, or lust. How do I know that? Because you're a man. Pride, anger, or lust. Memorize verses that deal with those issues and see if the Spirit doesn't work them out of your life. Last, out of time. The last way to consume the Bible is to meditate on it. In other words, meditate. In other words, it is more than just wrote mechanical exercises of reading and memorizing and hearing and even studying and checking boxes. Meditation is the process of applying it to your life. And as soon as I said the word meditation, some of you immediately thought, man, he's good. he really has gone off the deep end. He's talking about Eastern mysticism. No, I'm not. Meditation, what they do in meditation and what we do in meditation are complete opposites. And I'm going to talk about the spiritual discipline and medita- of meditation in the weeks ahead, so I will leave it till then. So as we we close. Consider this. Almost any counselor, therapist worth their salt will tell you that communication is an important key, perhaps the most important key to a good relationship. I believe it is also key to a good relationship with God. He has communicated with us we're talk about prayer, communicating with him at a future date, but he has communicated with us. He has revealed himself to us primarily through his word and ultimately through his son, Hebrews chapter one. But even, even the this, this son, this ultimate self-revelation, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. It is these that speak of me. So. Do you want to know Jesus? I'll let you answer that question. Consume the Bible. Do you want to be like Jesus? Then you must feed yourself the spiritual food of God's word. There is no shortcut. Let's stand for prayer.